0: Well, Maxim, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, great to be here. So, you recently wrote a a great article about Russia Ukraine including some forecasts on your Substack, uh maximtruth.substack.com, I'm getting it correctly. Um and we're going to talk to you about that, talk about your forecasts and, and uh, the constraints that you're looking at when it comes to this conflict, but Real quick, could you give our 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 listeners a quick background in terms of who you are um, and your work forecasting Russia, Ukraine?
1: Yeah, well, I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for more than a decade. So mostly I've worked with John Stossel um, and I'm executive producer of his TV operation. I've worked at ABC and Fox. And one of my big side projects has been electionbettingodds.com, where we track the betting odds across multiple exchanges and we aggregate them into one easy to understand number. So if you go there right now, you can see that Zelensky has a 91% chance of staying in office through April 22nd. So uh, the betters are bullish on you know Ukrainians holding Kiev and him holding out. And then my latest thing is this Maximum maximumtruth.substack.com operation and basically it's data-driven journalism and um, my latest posts have been about Russia because I was in Russia for three weeks, either three months, including when the war started. And um, so that gave me a little bit of insight into the way ordinary Russians are thinking about this. And I wanted to share that with people.
0: And um, before we talk about the conflict that as it is right now, did you make any forecast before the invasion about whether Putin would have invaded Ukraine or, um
1: anything like Uh, that nothing public no i i internally i did not predict that they would do this kind of full-scale invasion um i i i you know privately i was predicting and emails to my friends and whatnot i was predicting they would do something small just like they did in georgia uh and crimea because they had a a successful track record with that they would do a small incursion which was wrong they they clearly thought they could do much more than that
0: Cool. So now, um, yeah, it'd be great to sort of talk about your article. You know, you wrote about, I, th- I think sort of like the, the big part was the impact or I think lack of impact on, on sanctions in, tor- in terms of um, Russian daily life as well as your view on the military situation. So as our listeners are, are are listening to this podcast, we are entering the fifth week of Russia's invasion. And so what is your sort of macro view of the situation. And when you're thinking about potential outcomes that this current stage of fighting can lead to, uh, what do you think are the plausible scenarios? And then after that, we can talk about the forecast for each of those uh, scenarios.
1: Yeah, I mean, still, there are a lot of things that could happen. You know, when I am talking about this, I'm talking for like a Western audience. And so I'm trying to share things that I think they might have we might have blind spots too like um i think westerners would be surprised at the extent to which russians <clears throat> do support this war or even the ones who don't many of them who don't support it say well i still understand why why we did this um, of course there are there are also some russians who strongly oppose it and you know thousands of people have been arrested protesting so we shouldn't forget that either. But when you look at polls, if anything, the most Russians tend to support the war. And I was in Russia for three months and just talking with ordinary people there gave me the sense that the polls are correct. You know, Without that, I'd be like, well, who can trust these polls, even if they're done independently, because people might not feel free to talk. But when you're one-on-one with someone in a bar, you can I think you can get a pretty good sense many people there actually support the war and they feel that russians were being oppressed in ukraine they feel that the west was pushing russia around Um, they feel all these things that russia gives as its justification so it's just important to know it doesn't justify the war but we should be aware that russian public sentiment is not similar to western public sentiment
2: Something else you mentioned um, in that newsletter was also you know providing a new uh, sort of perspective on the current sanctions regime in Russia um, and trying to uh, you know, I think the media and a lot of you know Twitter um, you know people seem to be very bullish on sanctions and think that they're working and you know having a very um, sort of detrimental impact on the Russian economy and the people there. Um, and you know what you're saying is that if you're looking at some of these metrics like the ruble to the dollar, Um, or, you know, looking at how much GDP might decline relative um, to what you might see in some other countries, or even inflation, that, you know, some of these issues aren't as drastic as people are making them out to be. Um, Could you speak a little bit about sort of your take on um, how these sanctions have progressed from the beginning of the conflict five weeks ago
1: to today? Yeah, I mean, first off, I'll say I left Russia one week into the conflict on March 1st, and um, at that time, you know, daily life was, it was just, Almost totally normal. Like maybe some Western credit cards were being declined sometimes, but everyone's out on the streets, everyone's going to work. Um, it was normal. Um, now, uh, after that, Western companies started to pull out. McDonald's closed, IKEA closed, uh, lots of pla- Western places closed. And um, obviously, you notice that, but still, this isn't, you know, when I talk with the people I met there. Uh, and get updates from them uh, this it doesn't end your life to have McDonald's and IKEA closed or the Apple store closed so people are like yeah you know it's a bit of an inconvenience but life goes on people are still going to you know board games meetups they're still going go-karting they're still living life they're still going to work they're still living life pretty normally now that's not to say sanctions have had no effect. I read articles saying their tank production has stopped because they're missing a part that they used to import. Um, that's that's a real effect. Um but daily life goes on, and we should be aware of that. and people are ordinary Russians are not in hardship or, you know, struggling. it's it's just life
0: <laughs> you know, something that we've also thought about sanctions is n- not only Russia's ability to Um, evade the sanctions now, but even if hypothetically the U.S. manages to get China on its side to help to prevent Russia from uh, skipping sanctions, which I think is uh, unlikely to happen. Um, But even if that were to happen, um, do you have a sense of would the Russian population blame the regime or would they blame the West? Because, you know, we looked at polls when uh, we were forecasting Um, And prior to the invasion, um, Russians primarily blamed the West on the conflict. Uh, I think it was like uh, 60% the West, 14% blamed Ukraine, and 14% blamed Russia or something. Um, Even if sanctions sink in, do you think it'll have the effect that um, people are expecting it to have in terms of creating friction between the population and the regime?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that's hard to forecast. I think it depends partly on the nature of it. I mean, one thing, if you look at Russian media, they play up some of the more flashy sanctions that we have, whether it's like disinviting a Russian from a chess tournament or the, from the Paralympics, things like that. And those things, I think it's pretty obvious that most Russians are like just annoyed by it. It's like you're you're just sticking it to the russian people and they're not going to be thrilled by that Um, so i i'm sure they would blame the west most russians would blame the west for stuff like that on the other hand if suddenly all their stores are empty of food or something or some basic necessity you would it gets a little less predictable I, i would say um and obviously they would somewhat blame the west but um maybe their own government starts to look pretty incompetent too. So um, yeah, that's hard to say. Oh, one thing I will say, uh, getting back to something Andrew said, like, yeah, we have estimates on what's gonna happen to Russian GDP and inflation based on these sanctions. So it's a JP Morgan did an internal report that a friend in finance sent me and they project a 7% reduction in GDP this year in Russia which is like bad, that doesn't happen in an, any kind of normal environment, but it's also not the end of the world. You know, it's a 7% reduction, it's, worse, it's a little bit worse than our great recession of 2008. Um, so, but it's just not the end of the world. Um, they also project 17% inflation. Again, like very bad, <laughs> uh, but still, you're not gonna be starving in the street from 17% inflation. And uh, just on, on that note, something that we've talked
0: about in our newsletter is there, there's also um, like in terms of Russia defaulting on its debt is very unlikely to happen because they have very little debt. Um, and the only way that they would default is if they chose to default, which would be more signaling rather than a indication of the economic conditions. Um, and there was also some other analysis that, you know, Russia has traditionally stuck to a very strict Western monetary policy. Uh, and given their exclusion that they're having right now, they might actually be able to run a more um, expansionary uh, monetary policy and actually counteract um, some of the negative impacts of sanctions. Um, and so, you know, it is like, you know, you've talked about this. We've talked about I, I, I think a lot of people view this conflict as time. Um, and the real question is, can sanctions do enough damage fast enough um And I think the evidence that that's the case is not that strong right now. Uh, Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would. Um, Yeah, you know, based on all these numbers um, and just talking to people there, my sense is that it's not strong enough to force them to change course. Um, Maybe it'll make them want to change course and and to work out a deal. There's no doubt that it uh, puts pressure on Russia towards a deal, it makes a deal more likely. That being said, it's not forcing them into a deal. So when we try to put probabilities on these things, you know, we should keep that in mind.
2: And also, I think something that's important when talking about sanctions before we move on um, is this idea of short term versus long term impact. How are you thinking about sort of the short the short term implications of these sanctions on Russia's economic viability and you know the popular happiness in the country versus long term you know if these sanctions were to hold maybe that's when we see some of the you know chinks in the armor um, of that Russian
1: economy. Yeah, um, so the short term stuff is kind of what I've been talking about. It's what we can do right. right now and ask people in Russia about. And again, it doesn't seem that bad. Long term first of all, I look at the JP Morgan and other reports too, which are in line with that. And they also suggest it's going to be bad, but not world ending. And that seems right. And when you go into the very long run, like two years, three years, it probably gets even less bad because it just means that, okay, with this part that they need to make a tank for, they just build a factory for that. And they become entirely self-reliant, which is less efficient, but, um, they don't have to depend on other countries then, so that's what will happen in the very long run. Mm-hmm. I yeah. talked with some Russians who were like, "That's going to be good. Like, we should be, we should be independent and
2: building industry domestically right. and such." Yeah.
1: Um, you
0: know, actually, it, it's kind of a a, a clunky segue, but um, speaking about long term impact of sanctions, do you think there's any risk of? Um, de-dollarization as, as as an impact of the sanctions. And I think related to that is, how are you viewing China's role um, within this conflict? Because um, in, in some ways, right, like long-term sanctions on Russia could help de-dollarization, which would be in China's interest. And they obviously have a, a larger role as well in the conflict. Um,
1: yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've read that Saudi Arabia is considering pricing oil in Chinese Uganda. And that would obviously be a step towards de-dollarization, which could be a problem considering how much debt the US holds, and they they would have start having to pay more interest to uh, to keep holding that debt. So yeah, I think that could happen. That's all. That's another thing that it's just uh, very hard to predict but it seems like the sanctions are certainly pushing in that direction we can say that with confidence
2: and do you think um i guess how do you see china's priorities in this conflict um like do you think that they have a real interest in you know russia's well-being do you think it's more of a security issue for them and so they just want to maintain stability in the region um yeah what do you think their goals are Um, And
1: how's that going to translate into you know what their actions might be? Well, they definitely don't care about Russia's well-being. I think that's—I feel pretty certain about that regarding China's leadership. Anyway, Um, now they are looking geopolitically at things like okay, so we want to take Taiwan in 20 years, um, or whatever time frame (laughs) they're they're looking at, and um, they. are looking at if they if they were to join with the West, completely cut off Russia, you know force Russia back they they just lose in every way, which China probably might be able to do given how much trade Russia has with China um, what then happens if China wants to buck the world order and say go into Taiwan twenty years from now, then the whole world's against China that's the precedent um so I think they're I think that's definitely something they're considering when they're um not uh, you know putting their full weight on Russia or necessarily any weight to end the end the war. Um and that's not a good motivation. We should be doing whatever we can to discourage them from invading other countries. But that's that's where I see China there. I mean, on Taiwan, they're they're increasingly in the last couple of years, they've been aggressive, they've been pushing even like american groups like they, they fund university chinese language classes they've been trying to force universities in the u.s to not talk about how taiwan is a country if companies like marriott hotel list taiwan and their website like options list you know they they demand they force marriott to take it down the companies always comply so china's been getting increasingly aggressive with their pushing taiwan as part of china thing and that, so just that's how we know it's definitely on their mind when they're dealing with any foreign policy.
0: Um, yeah, I think um that's sort of how we've been viewing China's role um throughout this. Um, and I think one of the things that we've always touched on is, yeah, it, it's very it's going to be very difficult to convince China to side on the liberal world order, which we claim that they are a threat to. Um, yeah. to support us to take down a strategic ally. Um, So I think actually from that, um, we'd like to talk about the forecast that you made in your article as Global Gassing. We do forecasts um, too. Um, And so how we've been viewing the Russo-Ukrainian war since Russia most recently invaded was trying to view like this current stage of fighting. And so we mapped out like what what are the possible outcomes? And one is um, there's a peace deal you know, before Kiev falls, um, or there isn't, and that the Russian government either collapses before then or it doesn't. Um, thinking that if Russia is able to capture Kyiv, that um, the risk to their collapse is probably more long-term. Um, and when it came to a peace deal, um, either, you know, there'd be a draw, um, the West slash Ukraine would surrender, given to uh, Russian native demands and territory, um, or Russia would surrender probably after facing substantial risk of facing internal collapse. Um, and so that's how sort of we mapped out the situation, and 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 you sort of did a a, a similar job. Uh, but before we hop into those specifically, I'm wondering, like, what constraints? Like, how how did you view each actor, um, and what they would want out of the conflict, um, and how did you use that to think about you know, the relative likelihoods for each of these outcomes?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think our forecasts are relatively in line with each other. I think the most likely thing is uh, a deal does get worked out where Ukraine agrees to neutrality and maybe does not agree to major territorial concessions. Maybe there are some. I think that's most likely, the next most likely thing. And so I think that's like 60% chance. Uh, The next most likely thing of like 20% chance, I think is no deal gets worked out. Russia takes, they've already taken a huge amount of Southern and uh, Eastern Ukraine, which people don't focus on, but they've taken a huge swaths of that. They take a little bit more of that they trench in and they declare it independent and we basically have two ukraine we have western ukraine eastern ukraine um and and maybe there's no peace deal it's just kind of like a stalemate like there's been in the donbass area for the last uh seven years or so um so those are kind of the two most likely scenarios then there there are a bunch of other possibilities though um there's uh Russia could collapse internally. I think that's only like five to ten percent um, because the attitudes in Russia are very different from in the West. And so they're less likely to overthrow their leader uh, than we think. Um there also the Ukrainians could shock everyone and start, you know, with these supplies from the West, just start pushing the Russians back everywhere. They already are in Kiev a little bit. Um and and in one other area. So it's possible, 5% chance, I would say, that the Ukrainians just start winning and pushing Russia back to Russia. Um, On the other hand, I also give it a 5% chance now that Russia somehow gets their military together or Ukrainian supply lines just collapse and Russia just pushes through the whole thing. They take Kiev, they, they just start running through. So again, those are extremely unlikely, but I think they are possible. So that's kind of my uh, layout of the probabilities, um, yeah, I'm happy to bet people on them if they want. what do you think the appetite is of
2: the West for a situation like the second one you mentioned splitting Ukraine into East Ukraine and West ukraine? I mean, yeah. We haven't seen that sort of split recognized internationally since like right. two thousand and eleven with sudan um, and that was you know voted on like yeah. do you think that they would? Stomach that would that be acceptable?
1: if it yeah, Probably be not. Stability? <laughs> I, I think I think the at um, I think the support for that in the West is pretty much zero. Um, but then, the, you know, it becomes a question of what are they going to do about if Russia is fully entrenched there? I mean, just like what happened in Donbass with the Donetsk and uh, Luhansk area. Know, so. There's been a stalemate there for eight years. And um, it's, the West doesn't like that, Ukraine doesn't like that, but that's the reality. Um, So basically, we just see that again on a larger scale. Um, And that probably wouldn't be great for anyone in general, like these regions, like the Donetsk People's Republic, you know, it's very poor. They don't have any trade. They don't have any like international recognition. It kind of sucks to live there. So it's not a good solution, but that that could happen if if there's just no peace deal worked out
0: yeah that that's something that Andrew and I Andrew and I have tried to think about like what happens if there's a, a peace settlement between Russia and Ukraine but not a, a larger agreement between Russia, the us, the EU, probably China mm. as as things are sort of heading um, and so while the immediate conflict is had has sort of been resolved like there is sort of two levels to the russia ukraine conflict that are forming and so like the larger international one um would in some ways persist if the most extreme sanctions weren't um Mm. taken off of russia um,
1: yeah i mean right now yeah that makes sense and hopefully these sanctions do push russia to make a deal um and that we avoid this kind of unrecognized, perpetual stalemate war. Um, I think one thing that's important for that to happen is for people in the West. I, I worry that there's a little bit of a overly, you know, Russia is the devil, and and Zelensky is like the you know hero of the century, and. Russia is in the wrong, obviously, for launching this invasion. But we can't demonize them to the extent that we could never reach a deal with them. So we, that's kind of what I'm the error that I'm hoping people will avoid here.
2: Agreed. Agreed. Um, and something also that I think is kind of interesting, um, I think you might have also touched on in your newsletter. Um, I guess I'm just curious why like would you categorize what we're seeing today as um like a proxy war? I mean, when we're talking about these other levels of, of of influence and um the fact that you know a deal ultimately will probably be decided not just by Russia and Ukraine, but by these other actors. Um, would you say this is, you know, a proxy war and maybe the first we've seen
1: in a long time in Europe? Yeah. Uh yeah. It, um certainly from the west perspective it seems like a proxy war where they're sending enormous amounts of weapons in there um but not actual troops uh sort of like i mean in for russia it's now obviously it's just an actual right. um maybe almost the reverse of vietnam where you had u.s troops and soviet support going in there
2: mm-hmm. um
1: yeah definitely proxy war. Syria. yeah yeah right I mean, I guess it's not the first proxy war in the world in a long time. You have like right. Yemen, where Iran is playing one of the proxy elements, but in, in Saudi Europe,
2: Arabia.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: you know, our forecasts in many ways are similar in terms of thinking, even if our final outcome, I, I would say, is different. I would say uh-huh. and. Andrew and I are definitely more pessimistic about a, a peace okay. deal being reached in in the short term, um, just given the constraints in terms of what yeah. each side would accept as a minimum peace deal. Um, mm-hmm. I would also say that we're a little bit, uh, m- m- not optimistic is not the right word to use, but um, more bullish on Russia's chances in a larger conflict, um, just given what, what we've seen um, and something we'll talk about i think in a later newsletter but a lot of attention is put on to the failure of you know capturing kiev in three days or three weeks um Mm -hmm. but there's multiple ways you can view at that that doesn't i think discredit the entire russian military Um, but to focus on the peace deal i'm wondering like what do you think is the minimum deal that Ukraine would be willing to accept and that Russia would, would, would be willing to accept that, you know, both sides would be comfortable, like, uh, leaving um, the conflict behind?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, this really depends how put upon each side feels. But I think perhaps like the modal most likely outcome of a peace deal, you could imagine Ukraine just Ukraine says we'll be neutral, no NATO. Um None of this will only take Western weapons if you know we're uh attacked. Um and meanwhile Russia will give up all the new stuff it's taken, um, but they'll go back to their uh the places they already had. And Ukraine maybe they they won't formally recognize it to save face, but it's, it's something like that. Um I could imagine happening but you guys you might be right i i don't know maybe people are just so entrenched that it's not it's not gonna be worked out and they'll just keep fighting um, but that's kind of the most basic deal that i see as being possible
2: one of the constraints that we had discussed when we were thinking about this minimum peace deal um was the constraint of sort of russian domestic opinion and how that would um, have an impact on Putin's decision making. Do you mm-hmm. think that they would support a peace deal um, if it seemed like Russia did not come out on top in terms of what they got? So, like, if you know they didn't get um, like the Donbas region, for example, would that be something that you know the Russian populace would be very upset about? They seem to be maybe even more neutral to this whole thing. So are they just not really a factor when we're thinking about um, what Russia needs? Like, how do you see the role of you know, the Russian
1: populace? My, my sense definitely is that the Russian people will go along. If, if Putin says something's a win and there's, you know, some way to justify it, like, okay, they're not going to join NATO. And we're the, at least the places we already control, they already controlled of the Donbass, that they're staying there and they're staying in Crimea. Right that they can, he can call it a win, and most of the patriotic Russians will say, yeah, we won. Um, That's my sense of the kind of mood there. Um, Yeah. Well, um, before we
0: finish up, uh, Maxim, what are the the three things in this conflict that sort of like you're watching for in terms of... Um, viewing the situation? And in particular, is there anything that like, if you saw you would fundamentally shift your like, uh, your forecasts, your 25 would become 70% instead? Like, sure. um,
1: yeah, well, first of all, by the way, I'm curious, um, you brought up that you think Russia has uh, better chances than they're often given in of what large scale war, I'd be curious to hear more of uh, your reasoning on that. And yeah, like, yeah.
0: Um,
1: I, I think sort
0: of part of it goes down to um, the way in which the conflict was started. Um, I think it's been portrayed as you know, Russia tried for a shock and awe um, um, a tactic when they started, whereas uh, how Andrew and I've have, have, have viewed it is more that it was the last um the last like um ultimatum that 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 putin was given right all throughout you know last year and in in terms of ukraine doing minsk in terms of um you know doing off nato um like look we are going to invade like Here's our invasion force it's going to happen. Are you going to surrender? Um, because the West has said that they're not going to intervene on your side. Um, and then things didn't work out in that way. Um, but we still seen casualties be roughly similar across the sides. Um, Russia has more supply that they can pull out from, they have uh, stronger uh, advantages. And, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised this conflict's going to take many months. And so. Um, I think a lot of the assumptions is that they failed on the short term, and therefore that means something about the long term, whereas the reason why they failed in the short term could have been um you know they were expecting a different political decision to happen within Ukraine that didn't happen, and now they've had to prepare for an actual war um now, Andrew, what, you... what? okay, go ahead, oh no, I was just gonna
2: yeah, no, I'd agree. I do have a question, but I'm going to bring it up afterwards. I don't want to get off topic. Um, yeah.
1: Um, you know, stuff that um, that's an interesting perspective and points. I wonder, though, when I read stuff saying, you know, they've already lost like 20 percent of their effective force and like I, I know they have other soldiers in Russia, but maybe not trained soldiers. I thought they've already brought in their naval infantry from their north sea fleet which i don't know doesn't i feel like if you're bringing in those guys it's not not a great sign for your like overall it's it seems like you're dipping into the bottom of the barrel there not in terms of the strength, but in terms of who you'd normally bring into like a this kind of combat
0: yeah i mean i definitely say it's it's fair that We've been surprised, and a lot of people have been surprised at the effectiveness of the Ukrainian military, um, especially as it's, you know, funded and getting intelligence yeah. from uh, the U.S. and and NATO, the rest which of is the world. yeah, like I don't know how valuable like having U.S. do your intel um, and probably having the State Department do a lot of planning and war games with you to to help out uh, in terms of fighting capacity. Um, but if you also think about like US um, going into Iraq in 2003, that took us a month for a country that's, you know, one third the size. Um, we had a much greater military power differential. Um, and it's a much more concentrated country as well. And that still took us a month. And so, you know, Russia's still more powerful, but the difference is less. It's a much bigger country with a more dispersed population like Baghdad as a percentage of population is much bigger than uh Kiev is um but by by uh by by contrast um yeah
1: yeah you know well, wars go on yeah. um yeah well to answer to answer your question by the way about what I'm looking at first of all I'm looking at the Russian advances in the south and the east because they're still moving there if we saw a situation where Ukraine started pushing them back there, the way that is sort of happening in Kiev right now, you know, it seems to me like the Russians got to make a deal. On the other hand, if they keep advancing there and maybe at some point start trenching in in places, it's looking like maybe they're saying we don't need a deal; we're just going to take Eastern Ukraine. Um, so. I'm looking at the on the ground stuff there every day I refresh you know the latest uh, maps about where their troop lines are and. uh, They are still advancing there and until that stops or reverses the kind of bloody deadlock scenario is still unfortunately. Has a good chance.
2: I do have one question. I know we're about to wrap up, um, but you know, you have this website, election betting odds. Yeah. Now, I was wondering, how do you see the upcoming midterms um, and generally speaking, just US domestic politics playing a role um, in this conflict if, as Clay said, it's going to go longer, a few months, you know, it's going to bleed into that sort of um, heavy campaigning time. Do you think that um, then pressure will be on the US then to be more resolute about its stance um you know either makes do something very definitive or then to step back or yeah
1: how do you think that'll play out sort of this russia ukraine situation question. it's it's difficult to say there because um it kind of goes both ways like the administration might gain points in terms of popularity by taking a really hardline stance against the evil russians but they may also gain points by ending the oil sanctions and bringing gas prices down a little bit. So and we can see they're definitely aware of that. And you can see they're negotiating hard with even Iran and Venezuela because they're worried about where gas prices are going. Um, Other
2: people won't pick up our phone calls.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true, too. So that's hard to say. I mean, what we can say looking at the betting odds is that uh, the Republicans have a pretty good shot, although it doesn't ha- it doesn't seem to have changed much uh, during the war. Basically, Republicans have an 84 ch- percent chance of retaking the House. They've got a 75 percent chance of retaking the Senate. But both of those are basically unchanged during the war. So, yeah,
0: Interesting. maybe all the betters are on the uh, Russia, Ukraine markets and they just forgot about yeah. uh, the election. <laughs> <clears throat> well, Maxim, this this has been this has been great. Um, where can our listeners find you? And um, any teasers about the next Substack post? Any forecast going to be there too?
1: Well, uh, yeah, the main place to find me is maximumtruth.substack.com, and you can just enter your email there. You'll get all my posts; they're all free. Um, and yeah, I mean, the next thing I'll just be doing an update on the situation on the ground. Even since the last post, Russia has advanced in the south and the east, which might make a peace deal a little bit less likely. Um, and I also have more data beyond JP Morgan, I have many estimates uh, from major banks about where Russia's GDP is going. Um, and there are there, maybe the average is a little higher than JP Morgan at like 9% or something, but it's in the ballpark. And so we'll be adding some more data on that.
0: Awesome. Uh, Looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. All right. Have a good one. Yeah. You too. Have a good day.